0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we connect trending evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today's conversation dives into the brand new gold guidelines that include significant changes in the treatment of COPD. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University and the uh, host of this uh, podcast which uh, we really try to give you the latest pharmacotherapy and other type of information for all sorts of healthcare professionals, uh, physicians, um, uh, mid-level providers, pharmacists to really give them the latest information they can put to the bedside, you know, uh, and immediately use to help improve the outcomes of their patients. And so today we're going to do an update on the gold guidelines for COPD. These are literally hot off the press. They've only been published uh, in the second week of November and uh, like so many big publications it's funny how I have uh, friends of mine or colleagues of mine who, you know, throw about 10 emails or or social media uh, responses to me really quick saying, hey, hey, there's new guidelines. You should do these for game changers. And uh, there are actually some significant changes in this update of the gold guidelines. So we we definitely thought like it it is worth an update and just an overall review of of how to treat COPDs or, you know, kind of doing the most evidence-based stuff. So, uh, you know, it's well worth the read. We've got the uh, actual Uh, link to the whole gold guidelines in our show notes and if you've ever read the whole thing it is a pretty voluminous it's usually you know several hundred pages long but they also have the nice little cards you can get that you can put in your pocket that really give you the latest evidence base for for treating COPD so let's get into talking about that so I mean again COPD as we all are aware of is obstructive lung disease something I'm continually discussing with my students is that there is a big difference between asthma or other types of reactive lung disease and obstructive lung disease where basically there's something blocked normal airflow, which can either lead to uh, hypercapnia or hypoxia. As we all know, smoking is is by far the number one risk factor for developing COPD, but is by no means the only one. I certainly know people who have never smoked a day in their life. They've never known anyone who smoked a day in their life and they still have bad COPD. So yes, smoking is one of the big causes and other environmental exposures such as exposure to polluted air, uh, occupational exposures. The data is pretty clear that if you live, for example, in an urban uh, environment, you tend to have a higher risk of COPD than those live in rural environments and stuff like that and there are a couple of genetic factors that so that's being studied pretty intensely that leads to in some cases chronic inflammation which leads to pathological changes in the airways and the vasculature of the airways leading to obstruction the other big cause that can sometimes uh, lead to copd is long-standing asthma especially childhood asthma um, eventually you know the, the repeated insults to to the, the bronchioles will eventually lead to you know marked chronic inflammation obstruction of, of the lung field so you know i think we're all pretty aware of, of the uh, causes of COPD and one of the new changes is that uh, the, there's a proposed taxonomy now for COPD you know as we've long known COPD is not one disease and, and it's not even probably two diseases I mean when I was taught and something I teach my students is you know there's the emphysema type of COPD or the you know the pink puffer if you will and the chronic uh, bronchitis type of COPD of the blue bloater if you guys remember that from school and of course you know many patients have both and I think they're trying to get away from that and, and really trying to to, to stratify COPD by its cause so again environmental CB, COPD would be the most common cause cigarette smoking pollution exposure uh, COPD due to chronic infections, COPD to, due to asthma and COPD that's genetically determined and right now the, the big one of those that you know we do see on occasion is alpha one trypsin deficiency the evidence suggests that we probably underdiagnose alpha one trypsin deficiency especially in younger patients who have symptoms of COPD and the uh, pulmonologist I work with on, on my, my ICU or, or you know they try to be pretty vigilant of taking a look for that, especially in younger patients with COPD. So again, one of the big changes in the new GOLD guidelines is this proposed taxonomy that kind of gets away from the classic emphysema and chronic bronchitis and and more about, you know, what's the cause of COPD. The second big change in the the guidelines is a change in the uh, severity score of of COPD. You know, something I've long complained about, uh, and and, uh, colleagues of mine and students of mine have, have said this is, you know, a few years ago, the GOLD group basically came to This kind of matrix to determine you know what stage of COPD you're in and and you know it was basically dependent on you know your symptoms and your FEV one and the number of exacerbations you had and you kind of added all that stuff up and determined whether they were in a stage A B C or D and they've really gotten rid of the FEV one which is kind of interesting Um, and so in the new 2023 guidelines instead of A B C and D there's just A B and E and that's it and and while stage of COPD so you know mild mild or severe, very severe um, FEV1 by spirometry does play a role they really up emphasize the uh, risk of exacerbations and the long-term implications of people of frequent exacerbations so basically you still look at symptoms and that still plays a role but if you have zero to one moderate exacerbations in a year uh, you're either going to be in stage a or b again kind of depending on your symptom score Um, and then if you have more than two moderate exacerbations or greater than one uh, exacerbated to hospitalization they jump right over c and d and now you're in stage E. So there's only stage A, B, and E now in the in the new guidelines. And the, the difference there is that they've again gotten much more aggressive with early use of bronchodilators. And I think there is solid data to support this. I think we've had data now for quite some time that we should probably be starting dual bronchodilator therapy earlier in the stage of, of COPD than later. And I think the reason for that is, as everyone knows, you know, everybody has declining lung function as we get older. I mean, there's nothing you can really do about that. But as you might imagine COPD patients because of their inhibited FEV1 have a lower uh, amount of lung function to play with, right? So if you don't have COPD, you know, you can, you know, develop, you know, slight decrease in lung function over the next 20, 30, 40 years by the time you're 70, 80, and you might not have any real symptoms from that. But patients who have COPD have a much lower uh, baseline lung function to deteriorate. So we should probably push that curve up as high as we can by using dual bronchodilator therapy to basically push the FEV1 as, as high as we possibly can as they kind of go on that down slope for for uh, as they lose lung function, because they're going to lose lung function quicker and at a steeper slope than, than patients who don't have COPD. So uh, again, the, the big change in the 2023 guidelines is, is there is no stage C or D anymore. There's only stage E, and that exacerbations are now the most important thing you should be looking at when it comes to staging patients with COPD. Once you do that, uh, patients with stage A, so these are patients who have mild symptoms and, and have had only one moderate exacerbation at most. And any bronchodilator can be used in those patients. Um, I would argue that LAMAs are probably superior to labas as, as far as uh, the outcomes that we've seen. So that's probably what I would recommend. And, and again, I mean, there's so many of them out on the market now. I'm not really aware of one that's any necessarily better than another. And then if you're in stage B, which again is is zero to one exacerbations that don't have a, a hospitalization but more severe symptoms, they go right to a laba lama. And then there's multiple laba lama combos out there. And again, uh, I'm not sure there's any any head-to-head studies that show the one's any better than another. And then if you are in stage E, uh, they uh, again recommend labalama and then to seriously consider inhaled corticosteroids, particularly if their blood eosinophils are greater than 300. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along here. So again, some big, big changes in the pharmacologic treatment um, and the staging of patients. Again, not that FEV one doesn't still play a role, but it's really the, the, um, uh, the matrix that they use now for stratifying patients with COPD is much more about, exacerbations and, and frankly in my opinion is much easier to, to read and use because you don't have to you know try and triangulate three or four things on this scoring system to find a fair what's going on and really you know re- exacerbations are really what's going on now for the pharmacist listening you know you may say to yourself especially if you're working community pharmacy well yeah this is all terrific for you guys in the hospital but but you know how does this affect me well it affects I think all pharmacists because there is pretty solid data also that that shows and, and, and we're going to talk about this in a second that inhaler technique is actually one of the biggest countries factors to people have who have exacerbations and so yes there's other things obviously continued smoking history of exacerbations you know stuff like that but inhaler technique really has been shown to, to to play a role and as i'm sure every pharmacist listening to this knows Patients don't use their inhalers correctly, and uh, we, when I first started uh, at Drake uh, many years ago, uh, one of the classes we taught was was basically you know self care type things, and one of the things that we had we had a machine that basically uh, simulated a meter dose inhaler, and patients could practice with it, and it would show whether they were using it correctly, and I don't think I ever saw a patient where whoever actually used their inhalers correctly, and this is backed up by uh, uh, several studies, including a real nice meta analysis that was done in 2017 uh, that. Looked looked at all previous studies looking at error rates, and they found error rates anywhere between 75 and 100%. So again, almost all patients that they uh, had looked at in the various different types of inhalers looked at uh, made at least one error inhaler technique and the highest as you might imagine was meter dose inhalers where they found about 87% of patients had at least one error and even dry powder inhalers which are theoretically easier to use at about 61%. So um, you know again we know that these errors lead to uh, compromised drug delivery and and reduced efficacy and I mean you could argue even if the data doesn't show that uh, bad inhaler technique leads to exacerbations why would you spend $300 on an inhaler, only to not use it correctly, right? And so that plays a big role. And so the, the guidelines really do, I think, a good job of pointing out that we need to do a much much better job of continually uh, educating patients about an inhaler use. Again, you have all these patients. Well, I've used this, used these inhalers for years. I know how to use them correctly. And again, you know, the data is pretty clear that no, you don't. You know, and I think you know, it, it's like a lot of things. We need continual re-education of patients. And I think the way we sell that to them is to say, look, you know, you're spending a lot of money, or your insurance company's spending a lot of money, and you're having bad symptoms. If you want to, you get the most out of your drugs. You got to just basically use them correctly. Now, of course, there's all sorts of reasons for inhaler errors. You've got the different devices, which we now have three big types of devices, at four if you actually count uh, um, nebulizers that are out there. And of course, a lot of stuff having to do with physical skill and dexterity. If you've got somebody who's really bad rheumatoid arthritis or you know, Parkinson's disease, they're going to have a very difficult time using inhalers correctly. Uh, if, if they're weak in one arm, say they're post-stroke, that's going to be a problem. Lung capacity can play a real role, especially with deep uh, uh, dry powder inhalers, and then just basically coordination. So, you know, again, there are some cases where we're not going to be able to uh, significantly improve inhaler technique, but I think those are the minority. I think most patients are going to to be able to improve their inhaler technique. As we know, there's kind of three big or four big types of inhaler devices. Again, I I don't really count nebulizers in this group. I'm talking about more things that are dispensed from the community pharmacy. We still have uh, meter dose inhalers, most of which are pressurized meter dose inhalers. Those are, there's a couple of breath actuated ones on the market. Dark dry powder inhalers, uh, we have both multiple. Dose and single dose dry powder inhalers, and then the newest one is soft mist inhalers, which kind of I think tries to find a middle ground between dry powder inhalers and meter dose inhalers as we go along here. So, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to each one of these. The advantages of meter dose inhalers is, of course, they're probably the cheapest, though some of them are still pretty pricey. Um, they are usually a multi dose device. Most of them have do- dose counters now, so you know you don't have to wait until your albuterol inhaler is completely out when you have an exacerbation and it doesn't work. But it's probably the worst is of, of the devices as far as uh, coordination because if you don't coordinate the depressing of the of the inhaler uh, into the device and in inhalation correctly most of the drug impacts in the back of your throat and you swallow it and that's one of the reasons you know f- we've been saying for 30 years now that that spacers really should be given with all meter dose inhalers and again you know it, i'm real aware of the fact that some insurance companies don't pay for spacers i don't know why that doesn't make any sense to me um, and a lot of times physicians forget to order spacers. And I think, again, I think, you know, anyone that you've got on a meter dose inhaler should probably be on a spacer to help improve drug delivery into the lungs. Dry powder inhalers, of course, came came to the fore in the 1990s, partially because this was another way to deliver uh, especially long-acting drugs well, but mostly because if you're, you know, any veteran listeners uh, to the podcast know that uh, uh, the FDA basically made sh- made sure that uh, drug companies couldn't use chlorofluorocarbons anymore um, in, in their meter dose inhalers. And so that this was kind of a pivot away from from using cfc's and in their meter dose inhalers there are several advantages it's breath actuated so you don't have to have as good a a coordination between depressing the button and inhaling Um, and so that's kind of nice but the big big limitation and this has now been shown in several studies is that you need to have a good good enough lung function to actually get the drug into uh, your lungs and and they they measure this by something called peak inspiratory flow and um, you have to have a minimum of 30 liters per minute of peak inspiratory flow to actually get drugs in the lung and to really get drugs into the lower fields of the lung you need to have at least 60 or more liters per minute and patients with stage you know with 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 really low fe ones they're just not going to have the the peak peak inspiratory flow to actually get drugs into the lungs there's a a couple of devices out there that can actually help measure that that can actually measure peak inspiratory flow uh they're actually relatively inexpensive and i think can be a really good tool for both physicians and pharmacists to kind of help uh pick what type of, of inhaler you're going to use um the other problem with dry powder inhalers is there's at least some of them, like the handy inhaler version that you have to like break out a capsule and put it in. And again, yeah, that requires, you know, some some coordination to be able to do that. And then, you know, s- slow mist inhalers. Uh, I think, again, I've always tried to find that middle ground between dry powder and meter dose because the, the, dr- the drug comes out as a slow mist. So the velocity is much slower. So most of it doesn't impact on the back of the throat, yet there's still dry mist particles that can get in the, into, the, into the lower air airfields. Um, so this helps facilitate coordination you don't have to be quite as good about actuation and inhalation with these. Uh, But the big problem with many of them is that uh, you need to assemble them. And and in some cases, the pharmacy will do that. In some cases, the patient has to learn how to do that as well. So, you know, again, advantages and disadvantages. The big advantage, of course, of nebulizers is that uh, there's really no coordination issues. But the big problem, of course, is that the delivery time is much longer. You can't just take a puff off of it and you're done. You have to sit there for 10 minutes with the machine. But as we all know, uh, you know, in many cases, patients can't afford, especially uh, Medicare patients can't afford inhalers, and we know that nebulizers are covered usually under Medicare Part B, and so often uh, med- nebulizers are literally just a cost cost saving measure. Uh, to my knowledge, there is no data showing that that nebulizers have ever been superior to other types of inhalers as far as drug delivery, and so that's it. So, I mean, you know, the errors that are that occur with these, with the meter dose inhaler, is just not not using actuation and inhalation technique core appropriately. Dry powder inhalers again, not having the PIF to do that, and uh, this uh, um, uh, slow mist inhalers, uh, maintaining inhalation with the drugs, but you have to have a very very deep breath in as you depress the button for for uh, slow mist inhalers. So again, I think pharmacists can really play a role in doing this. And you know, again, I realize community pharmacists don't have the time to do anything now, and and I, I wish that wasn't the case. Obviously, but you know, this is something that you know, I, I one of many many sort of of um, cognitive type of activities that I think community pharmacists should rightly get paid for because um, this can really really help improve uh, drug delivery and I would argue if we could ever get a study that had enough patients in it I think would, would, would really show that it, that it actually does improve symptoms and probably decreases exas- exacerbation so so that's you know some of the background of that the other thing we really want to talk about here is inhaled corticosteroid treatment and there's been some big changes in that in the last three or four years and I think that this year's um, gold guidelines really kind of do a good job of finally summarizing that and putting it into an algorithm that you might want to take to look at. So, we're going to talk about inhaled corticosteroids right after this message from CE Impact. CE Impact CE memberships help you connect your learning to practice with unique education like this podcast. Go to CEimpact.com to learn more. So the new gold guidelines are what we're talking about on on today's podcast, and uh, we're going to talk a little about inhaled corticosteroids. I always tell my students that the the saga of inhaled corticosteroids and COPD is kind of fascinating from an historical perspective, because the pendulum has swung multiple times in the last 30 years. Uh, When I came out of school, nobody was on inhaled corticosteroids for COPD. Then after the TORCH study was published, everybody was on inhaled corticosteroids for COPD. And then after the Flame and Wisdom study were published, we're like, okay, who should really be on inhaled corticosteroids? And I think this really speaks to the fact that, again, COPD is not one disease. It's a a disease with multiple phenotypes, and there is probably some phenotypes where anti-inflammatories play a role. The new guidelines really do a good job of laying out in algorithmic format uh, the best way to consider inhaled corticosteroid use, and um, um, they say that you should really consider inhaled corticosteroids in patients who have multiple histories of of hospitalizations or exacerbations for COPD, multiple exacerbations per year, and a blood eosinophil count of greater than 300 cells per year. Microliter, and you know we've long been looking for biomarkers that would help us tell when to use inhaled corticosteroids in COPD patients I think we're still looking for the perfect biomarker but until then we've had a couple of of trials that have suggested that bloody eosinophils are a pretty good surrogate for that so again you know it strongly favors use and and we'll say why here in just a second that of, of patients with multiple exacerbations and then especially if their bloody eosinophil counts greater than 300 it favors use if they've had one moderate exacerbation of COPD per year as well as bloody eosinophil from 100 to less than 300, and they go against use in patients who have a lot of pneumonia events and patients with bloody eosinophils less than 100. And as we know from the TORCH study and several other studies, the benefit of inhaled corticosteroids is often overshadowed by increased risk of developing pneumonia. So in the GOLD guidelines, again, has a very, very nice algorithm looking at exacerbations. And again, the focus here is on exacerbations, uh, not necessarily on symptoms. And they point out that, again, especially if your bloody eosinophils are, are greater than 300 these are the ones you should use. And the reason for that now is we have at least two studies that have suggested that the triple therapy of LABA, LAMA, and Corticosteroids, especially in patients who have high blood eosin levels, has an improvement in mortality. And, and this has been kind of a breakthrough because really until these studies had come out, really there was no pharmacologic therapy known that was actually improving mortality in patients with COPD. The IMPACT study found a, a reduction in, in uh, mortality of, of 0.72, and the ETHOS study found a even more impressive reduction in 0. 0.51 as a hazard ratio for both those. And they note that both studies, these were people with had heavy symptoms with frequent or severe exacerbations, and most of them had high bloody acinophil levels. So you really kind of have to balance the two together to make a decision about a labalama and ICS. Yes, there is a couple of triple therapy and single inhaler things that are out there, and that's cool, I suppose, that's nice, but they're also significantly more expensive, and a lot of insurance companies you know, don't pay for them. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. Um, so, you know, I, I think this does a good job of really laying out who is going to benefit from inhaled corticosteroid therapy. Um, it does a good job in the text also talking about the fact that inhaled corticosteroids are not benign, though I think a lot of providers think that, oh, you know, how can it hurt you? They're, you're just inhaling the drug. And again, you know, we know they increase the risk of pneumonia. We know there's some retrospective studies that a lot of the long-term uh, systemic corticosteroid side effects that you see, you can start to see with a high-dose ICS long-term treatment. So, you know, inhaled corticosteroids are not benign Nine um, and you really need to do a good risk versus benefit assessment before you just slap everybody on an inhaled corticosteroid. So, but but I don't want to downplay the fact that yes, uh, the studies that have looked at triple therapy. This is the first time we've seen pharmacologic therapy really really improve mortality because the only thing we've really seen improve mortality at this point is non-pharmacologic things like oxygen, smoking cessation, and actually some uh, uh, forms of surgery to treat uh, severe COPD, like removing bullae or, or lung reduction surgery. So you know. It is a breakthrough, and it is worth noting, but I also think that we just don't, you know, we don't go to where we were with the TORCH study and slap everybody on an inhaled corticosteroid when, when they really um, probably shouldn't be. The guidelines also note that in their algorithm, algorithmic approach that, you know, if a patient continues to have low bloody eosinophil levels, besides labalamas, there are some oral therapies to consider. A reflumelast is a PDE4 inhibitor that I think was designed to be kind of a kinder, gentler theophyllin. Uh, you know, theophyllin was used for decades for COPD, but it, as we all know, has a fairly neurotherapeutic index and riflumilas is kind of a cousin of it that they thought may have the same effect as the offlin without the side effects and unfortunately that really hasn't been borne out it actually has only been shown to, to slightly decrease exacerbations and it does have again a litany of side effects including uh, nausea and weight loss and um, it's, it's, it's got actually you know, a warning for depression in its package insert which is kind of interesting and then the other thing to consider especially in smokers is uh, daily or three times weekly azithromycin um, and we're not using it for the antibacterial effects of azithro we're actually using it for its anti-inflammatory effects and again we now have uh, at least two studies that suggest that you know, especially in, in current smokers who have COPD that actually may decrease exacerbations um, and so it's something to consider in those patients other pharmacologic therapy that's kind of in the we don't use them a lot but could be considered uh, you, you can uh, give recombinant alpha one antitrypsin augmentation therapy in patients who, who do have alpha one antitrypsin deficiency uh, and it may slow down the progression of the disease but it's also unbelievably expensive and in, in the you know 50 to 75 thousand dollar a year range so kind of keep that in mind many patients with COPD because they have chronic cough or put on antitussives and you know there's really no evidence suggesting that they do anything so we i don't usually recommend those and then you know many patients who may have slight pulmonary hypertension because of their COPD uh, may get put on vasodilators and they actually recommend against the use of vasodilators because they actually may uh, worse worsen oxygenation now if somebody has significant pulmonary hypertension because of their lung disease that might be another issue but uh again, just to routinely put people on on those is, is actually not a good idea and something you really shouldn't probably consider. So, so you know, again, you know, some some big changes to this year's gold guidelines, and, and I think we've done a, a kind of a good job of surveying them. I think the things to really take home are, are, are that, you know, again, exacerbations are really the big thing you want to look at when you're assessing therapy that inhaled corticosteroids, uh, you know, do have a role in patients, especially when they have high bloody eosinophil levels or they have frequent exacerbations. And again, they are now the only real pharmacologic therapy to have any sort of influence on mortality and that third and again mostly for the pharmacists listening that we really need to do a better job of educating and continually re-educating patients about inhaler technique because they don't use the drug right you know it doesn't matter you know how often we we prescribe the drug or how many refills they get they're not using the drug correctly they're not getting benefits so so that's it for this week's uh, game changers um we will see you next week but until then remember time flies i don't know where it's going but the most important day is today we'll see you next week CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, sign up today to get CE each week just for listening in. See the show notes for more information. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.